This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, what happened when radical Black protesters found themselves surrounded by mostly white Democrats in Washington when the media announced that Donald Trump had lost the election? We'll find out from the chairman of the Black is Back Coalition. And we'll talk with the author of a book on mixed-race women, mulatas, and how they are depicted in Brazilian and U.S. media. But first, the corporate press has labeled virtually all black protests as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. But the reality is that many organizations have taken to the streets against racism and the rule of the rich. We spoke with Bria Johnson, a master's student at George Washington University, who is co-chair of Black Youth Project 100 in the nation's capital. We asked Johnson about BYP 100's relationship with local Black Lives Matter activists. BYP 100's DC chapter does have a good working relationship with BLM's DC chapter. We have organized events with them in the past. They've been a part of some of the things that we do. I know I have some incredible comrades who support the efforts of BLM. We all just want something similar, which is Black liberation. And we do the work here in the DMV, but specifically in DC, because that's where we live. And so there are just many opportunities where we work together. I know I saw many people from BLM were a part of the organizing efforts for the In Defense of Black Women's March that was on June 19th this year. So that was one really big moment. So yes, we do have a working relationship with them. I can only speak for myself when I say that that relationship is different from the relationship to the National Black Lives Matter organization. And I think that that difference matters given the statement that they just put out. Well, what are those differences? I think just self-determination and really wanting to practice the Black radical tradition is what tends to separate any organization's chapter from its national organizations, especially when you talk about like 501, 3Cs or whatever it's called. They just are so susceptible to the status quo. And I think that in the past, there was a lot of issues around transparency, around funding, from the National Black Lives Matter organization. And so now the critique is that the organization is more about career interests than it is about Black liberation. And so many chapters have actually disaffiliated themselves with the National Black Lives Matter organization because of issues around funding, because they wanted to practice their own self-determination, because they wanted to do things differently. They just released a statement that to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and it was, like, not radical. (laughs) 
And so I think people who want to do something far more radical just had to disaffiliate. I cannot speak to if the D.C. chapter of BLM specifically is disaffiliated from that, and I don't want to make claims for them. But I know that there is a lot of issues right now around movement organizations and career goals, career interests, pushing the status quo being more about funding than they are about, you know, community building. And that's a conflict that has always existed, and we're seeing it now. Well, tell us then about the focus of activities this year by D.C.'s Black Youth 100. Yeah, so one of the things that we focused on this year, again, many of our members were very, very deep involved in the organizing efforts around the uprisings that happened this summer for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and many more people. So our people were directly on the ground. And so what came with that was um, needing to show support for them and needing to give whatever remote support was available. That was one major effort. The effort to just maintain chapter meetings virtually is a big effort. It's very hard. Many of our members were directly impacted by the pandemic. You know, people lose their jobs. Their housing status was insecure. People have family members who lost their jobs and they were thrusted into childcare. So it was such a sudden shift for so many people. Just to be able to maintain our regular obligations was a lot to hold down. And so I'm very proud of us, mostly my other chapter members, for doing that work. The second, I would say, is like so much has just been thrown into just maintaining mutual aid. And I can't stress that enough because the government failed us tremendously with giving less than, what, 40 percent of the population one stipend check and giving some people unemployment. So many people were left out of that. So mutual aid efforts have taken up a lot of people's time. And I hope that people see the power in mutual aid and like how we keep us safe is really critical. Yes, many people see Washington, D.C. as being invulnerable or less vulnerable to the ups and downs of the economy because the government is there. But that's not really true, especially for Black Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's not true at all. (laughs) The wealth disparity in D.C., is egregious. I mean, just the effects of gentrification alone are egregious. People visit D.C. and they want to see the monuments and they want to see the White House and they want to go shopping, but they don't want to go to Southeast. They don't want to go to the wards that are not taken care of by the government. They have a very don't see, don't say anything type of mentality about D.C. I mean, you just had the issue around go-go music that blew up in D.C. this summer and a little bit last year where, you know, people were trying to stop residents from playing go-go music. Go-go is historic to Black D.C. residents. Like, that that's a part of the culture. And that was a moment where people had to come together and organize events to say, we're not letting you police us in this way. And so that part of D.C., definitely, they are actively trying to erase every single day. You have community members who have died by police violence even, I believe, this month. And it has caused uprisings that the media just completely ignores. And so, yeah, D.C. is definitely 
incredibly vulnerable. I mean, all places where Black people reside are vulnerable. But D.C. wants to build a new jail. Yep. And our mayor is a big supporter of that new jail, even though we need resources, That, which is one of the reasons why BYP 100 voted for the No New Jails campaign and has been actively trying to fight against this new jail for a very long time. But the mayor is still requesting money for this jail. She's still trying to increase the police budget and everything else is going ignored. But she allowed them to paint Black Lives Matter on the ground. (laughs) So that's supposed to mean something. And that's what identity politics gets you for sure, performances. And you've been tangling with the city council about decriminalizing sex work. Mm-hmm. So BYP has three active campaigns right now. She Safe, We Safe, which is a campaign against gender-based violence that seeks to find alternatives that don't involve the criminal punishment system. We have Decrim Now, which is a campaign to decriminalize sex work in D.C. And then we have No New Jails, which is, again, to fight against the new jail that's being proposed in D.C., And I would argue that even some of those efforts are for mass decarceration, which is something that we all want as well. Now, I know that there are activists in D.C. who've been promoting community control of the police. What's BY100's position on that? So it varies. We're a chapter of like almost 100 people. And so everybody kind of has different ideas, but I think a lot of political education is still needed around what this term community policing means, because we take the stance of abolition and we want complete community alternatives, community-based alternatives to what we now call the police. We don't just want to shift over who controls the police. That's not enough. We want to fundamentally abolish policing as we know it in Western culture and beyond. And I think that's what separates us from a lot of the people who just want this thing called community control of the the police. Because policing is something that we have deeply internalized. And so we always use the term kill the cop in your head. And so what we know is that the person that killed Trayvon Martin was not a police officer, right? And so we know the dangers of things called community policing. We know the dangers of things called the neighborhood watch. We know the dangers of things like that. So that doesn't necessarily get to the root of the problem. Only abolition can do that. You're 24 years old, but we know you came to some national recognition back in 2015 with the occupation of Towson State University. From your perspective, what changes has the movement undergone in the past five or six years? One of the most beautiful things that came out of Occupy Towson at Towson University was um, Freedom School, Towson Freedom School. So it became a space that in some ways divested from the Black organizations on campus for very particular reasons, but it became a space for radical education. It became a space where people wanted to learn about the Black radical tradition. They wanted to learn about Black feminism. They wanted to learn about queer and queer theory. And they wanted to be able to turn theory into action. And, you know, I really believe deeply in what Joyce James said, that like the theory, you know, it has to be made actionable. 
And that's like the only way that we can change the paradigm. And so I'm very proud of spaces like freedom schools where the grit that the academy holds on your ability to think and see clearly and assess the problem is temporarily alleviated. There's nothing more beautiful, in my opinion, than getting a group of Black people together for feminist consciousness raising. And that was something that we helped build throughout Towson Freedom School. I'm not deeply connected to Towson Freedom School anymore because life has taken me other places, but I know that they're still up and running and they're still trying their hardest to shift many things at Towson University. One of the demands that still has not been met to this day is divestment away from contracting with prisons because Towson gets all of this. Actually, the University Systems of Maryland, I believe, gets all of their furniture from prisons. So really trying to divest away from that, I think, is so critical to where we are in the overall movement for Black lives, where that type of relationship between the university and the criminal punishment system should not exist. And so understanding the connections the university has to some of the larger problems in society is where that movement needs to continue to go. The biggest limitation of student organizing is when you only focus on the demands of your specific university and you forget to connect your university to the world, right? So one of the things we said in Occupy Towson was like, the notion that the university is a microcosm of the world is flawed and it doesn't provide you with the best analysis to do the work that needs to be done. You have to see the university as a part of the world. So while you are on that campus, even though you may feel siloed and you may feel like your experiences are just specific to that campus, you have to know that that is not true. Your experiences are a reflection of white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist patriarchy and your university is actively participating and sustaining those things, and your university is likely probably actively participating in the climate collapse. And so what can your demands do to alleviate suffering on campus, but to also push the world to what we actually want to see as Black radicals? And so sometimes we get that in the Black student movement, and you have people who draft demands with that in mind and who do the work after to get to that place. And sometimes you have movements where people really were just in it to make some minor changes on their campus and they fade away. So after the sit-in, we lost a lot of people from our coalition base who, you know, they were done after that. But then we got some really strong people and we were able to do things like we took over the Board of Regents meeting and we did our best to infiltrate different units on campus that had levels of power we did our best. And so I think, you know, the next generation, I think what we're up against now is making sure that our efforts are not erased. Figuring out how to archive our own is so important to this movement. Figuring out how to tell our own narrative and figuring out how to make sure that when people tell history, they remember that the spectators of resistance were there is where I'm at with it now. And I hope that the next wave, because there's always going to be another group on campus organizing specifically that comes through and has to fight yet again. And so now one of the biggest movements is people want police out of schools. They want the relationships between police departments and universities to be severed. And so I think we'll see a lot of organizing efforts on Towson's campus and many campuses that are specifically around that why do we pay police officers for things that 
they should not be a part of. And so I hope to see that be pushed forward a lot. Retention and recruitment of Black faculty is really important, but not just Black faculty in STEM. A lot of people get upset with me, but I believe that the arts and the humanities and those types of scholars who we need now more than ever to help us interrogate what we're up against. And so I hope to see that. So I hope universities stop slaughtering Black studies, queer studies, and women's studies, and critical race theory, and all those incredible things, because we need it more than ever. In my role right now as education co-chair with my other lovely co-chair, their name is Naomi, and I have tried to do is just help facilitate people's consciousness raising to the best of our ability. What we try to do is figure out, like, what is this moment calling for? What is the best type of political education that's needed in this moment? So I wasn't a part of this, but a former member of UIP 100 is a Nigerian organizer named Nena. And so Nena was a part of organizing a political education for what was happening in Nigeria so that people in the States or anywhere else could get a real foundational understanding of what's happening in Nigeria, why we meet internationalism, and so on and so on. So that was a moment of reading the moment and being able to go back and pull from history, pull from theory, and pull from many other places so that you can help people understand what they are bearing witness to, one, which is one part of the political education, and two, how you can connect them back to their own hidden history, which I think is another part of it, and then three, is how you can help them freedom dream for the future. So when I say political education, and when I do this work, and what I hope to do as an organizer for the future and as a professor, if I ever become one, is those three things. I wanna help people understand what they're bearing witness to and what they're experiencing. I wanna be able to guide them through a historical analysis so they know what's not new and what's been hidden and what resistance has been in the past and how the problems came to be. And I really, really, really want to help them use their Black radical imagination and dream about something new, because I think we need all of that in order to get liberation for all Black people. On the subject of internationalism, we know that, especially after the massive mobilization back in June, there were demonstrations of solidarity from folks all over the world. But some of us have noted that there is not that level of reciprocity in terms of solidarity in many of the mobilizations here in the United States. Solidarity with Black folks in Brazil, solidarity with folks all over the world who are struggling against U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I know that that is a critique that many organizers abroad, Black feminists abroad, have said about specifically just Americans, um, North Americans specifically. And I think that we need to really reckon with what it means to be, yes, we are stolen people on stolen land, and we understand that, and we understand that we were brought here against our will, and so on and so on and so on, but... We need to return to what it means to live in the heart of empire. We know that that empire is violent towards us. We know that that empire doesn't want us here. 
We know what our experiences are. And also, can we hold the fact that we still live in the heart of that empire? And in some ways, we are still falling for the propaganda of that empire, one. And two, because this is technically our home, in the sense that we were born here, we grew up here, how does that cloud some of our political commitments? Or moreover, a more important question is like, how does that create some of our political limitations is a really important question for us to grapple with, specifically those born in the U.S. And so I know I just saw a tweet from my dear sister and comrade, Delfina Yuan, where she says, you know, you all don't hate this country enough for me. You, you don't hate empire enough for me, right? And I think that that returning to like that type of principle hatred for America is important because what we don't want is to fall for how enticing electoral politics can be. And so what we don't want is people that look like us necessarily being the heads of state and the heads of empire when their ideology is no different and when their ideology is going to be harmful for us, whether we want to admit to it or not. And also it's incredibly harmful to our communities abroad. And so we're really going to have to reckon with that. And so at what point do we need to take a step back and be quiet and kind of follow the lead of other places because of the fact that we live in the heart of empire? And those are questions that many people struggle with or they're just outright resistant to. But without internationalism, we are not going to get anywhere at all. Without global solidarity, we're not going to get anywhere at all. And I'm not saying that I'm someone that believes in like, we must be unified. Unity is the only way. I don't really believe in that either. But I do believe that an international politic is critical. And I do believe that there are moments where global solidarity, at least between Black people, is necessary and that we will fail without it. And so I agree with that sentiment. And I think that we just have to stop falling for things like American exceptionalism and we have to stop falling for American propaganda and so on and so on. One thing that I have to constantly tell some of the students I work with when I do various workshops and presentations and what and whatever through my university is that if you know that this country has produced so much propaganda about you and your black life to other Americans, why on earth would you trust anything that this country has to say about the global South or, or other parts of the world? Why do you trust anything America has to say about China when America's not even telling the truth about what happened to Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, and so many more people. So getting them to kind of understand the moments in which they've fallen for propaganda is important. And also just being honest that there are some people, including Black people, who don't actually see anything wrong with empire or colonialism or this and that. They really just want to be a part of it. And those are people we just also have to defeat. There's really no, there's nothing we can do with that. That was Bria Johnson of Black Youth Project 100 in Washington, D.C. The Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations has organized a Black People's March on the White House every year since Barack Obama was sworn in as president. According to Black is Back Chairman Omali Yeshitela, this year's demonstration coincided 
with the Saturday when the news media announced that Joe Biden had defeated President Donald Trump. You knew something different was happening in the context of the struggles happening inside this country when you saw brothers and sisters and comrades had placards on sticks. And on one side, you would see black community control of the police. On another side, free all political prisoners. And another one saying black people's march on the White House. And there were rows and rows of those that really added to the sense of significance for the mobilization itself. People could experience that. And of course, there was this huge banner that said Black People's March on the White House. That was the main thing. And then it put the theme of the mobilization there as well, which I think is extremely important because the theme was Black Power Matters down with colonialism and black community control of the police. That's the slogan that we moved out of that park with. And obviously there were serious political points that we wanted to make. And this was not just uh, trying to make a political report uh, against imperialism in some kind of abstract form, but just now on the ground, the contest that we are engaged in, and they come from various forces and various sectors of the country and the world. And so that slogan was important. And obviously to say Black Power Matters was a statement about what the coalition assumes about Black Lives Matter as a leading kind of slogan. We know that millions of people have been involved in demonstrations, protests, even rebellions in this country under the Black Lives Matter slogan because it has been a hashtag that's been put out by all of the ruling class media and even by ruling class politicians themselves, like Joe Biden was able to say that and all of them. Uh, But we felt like the masses of people needed leadership, wanted leadership, and that we had to take them beyond that kind of slogan and advance something that projects what we are fighting for, what we are fighting against. And when we said that black power matters, obviously that was a statement that the struggle has to be more than simply a decoration of our significance as human beings in terms of black lives matter. Black power matters down with colonialism, which actually defines or introduces the particular features of the oppression and exploitation of African people right now and black community control of the police. And that's what we marched out with, a huge banner with that. And we marched out in usually over the last several years when we've marched out of Malcolm X Park and gone down some of the major streets. The streets have been lined primarily with Africans who are cheering us on, standing up, fist pumping and that kind of thing. But this time, what was really interesting is before we left the park, we heard the horns blaring and people yelling and celebrating. And it was clear that the media had decided the election in the favor of Joe Biden. And so there was an extraordinary exuberance and exuberance that was we could hear it even before we got to places where people were beginning to congregate. And so here we are marching down this place, where, as I said, the majority of people being white, and some of them popping champagne corks and really just having a really exhilarating kind of moment in solidarity uh, with the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. And certainly that's the appearance that we get. And so we march out, and then it was striking because one of the most popular chants that we were using during this mobilization is 2468, tell the people who you hate, Republicans, Democrats, the whole damn bunch, or 2468, tell the people who you hate, Republicans, Democrats, the whole damn state. 
And this was the slogan, one of the most popular slogans, certainly when we got to larger clusters of uh, people who were out celebrating, that we were putting that forward. We had this banner talking about the struggle against colonialism and for black power, etc. And majority, as I said, of the people standing out were white. And what was really interesting to us is how white people were cheering these banners, cheering the slogans that we were making. So that was striking from the beginning. Still, I didn't know too much how to understand whether this was just a smattering of some people there who perhaps was a little confused. And so we marched till we got to Black Lives Matter Plaza. And we stopped there because we couldn't get to the venue that we were supposed to have our second rally after marching at the White House because we couldn't get there because the celebration in the streets of Washington, D.C. was such that it made traffic impossible. Even some of the cars that were traveling with our mobilization couldn't come in. The police wouldn't let them in because the scene was so thick there. And yet, here we are in the sea of mostly white people with sprinklings of Africans, and people began to not just hold a chant, which was good, but to speak, and to speak to this crew of people about how that they're claiming to love black people and black lives matter was meaningless unless they could unite with black people to fight for black power. You unite for the right and the struggle of black people for power. And we said that just to be saying you're against racism is not enough. You have to be against colonialism, because this defines the economic and political exploitation and oppression of black people. And you've got to be with us to be free, not just to see how much you like us. The whole mass of white people were out chanting black community control of the police, black community control of the police. So it was, it was really something to behold and to experience. And this was different from you know, a speech that we might make from lecterns or something like that, but actually out in the middle of this sea of people who were definitely Democrats with the big D and the small D, people who were exhibiting a patriotism and people who were Biden supporters, and then to make speeches, standing right face to face with them, as close as we could get without fear of contracting the virus, and we are talking about how the Democrats and the Republicans represent the same ruling class. And we give examples while people are there, uh, sometimes with their mouths wide open, of who Biden is and what he has done to our people and what he's done to peoples around the world. And so to see white people, many of them who were chanting with us, and, and all of whom sometimes in stunned silence, but otherwise showing interest in what was being said by the different speakers from our coalition who stood before them. I think that was really powerful, really positive, and I think it also represents what the coalition has for some time understood its mission to be, and that is to provide some kind of leadership. And leadership, we don't necessarily mean that all the time organizationally, but even in terms of ideas, even in terms of helping people to go beyond the simple analysis or lack thereof that comes from from the ruling class. I think the coalition has played an extraordinary job in doing that, and it's the only mobilization of its type that happened. I mean, here we are in the middle of this thing. You should have seen it. We had row after row of uh, people holding up their uh, free political prisoners, posters, and others, and then walking through, like parting the Red Sea, walking through this this mass of white people who were engaged in this incredible celebration 
of democracy and Biden. But on the other hand, we saw clear evidence of what we always understood to be the case, that many people were voting for Biden because of hatred or fear of Trump. And many people who voted for Biden did so holding their noses. So some of those people who were out there, I think, were quite sympathetic to what we were saying about there's no difference in the two and that we were against the whole system as it represents itself against black oppression and oppression of other peoples around the world. Yes, the Black is Back Coalition has been marching to the White House since the first year of the Obama administration and then through the Trump administration and this time in a way inaugurating a Biden administration. But Biden is putting together his new cabinet. And it seems that Susan Rice is a candidate for Secretary of State. Rice was, of course, Obama's ambassador to the UN, and she was a top black in the Clinton administration during the period when the Congo was invaded and a genocide that has claimed between six and eight million Congolese was begun. That bloodshed continues in the Congo. And if there's anybody that has been more intimately involved with the U.S. role in that genocide, it is Susan Rice. So how would you feel about Susan Rice as Secretary of State? Well, you know, all of these guys are going to get caught in the same situation. I think part of what's going on right now, and we'll see this shortly, I believe, is that they are really identifying themselves as working against the interests of African and other peoples around the world. Susan Rice, I'm not even sure. I think she would have a difficult time because, as you remember, they had floated her name as a potential vice presidential choice for Biden. She's proven who she is how she works for the system and would do anything in order to maintain this whole system of capitalist oppression and exploitation around the world. So she was obviously, you know, a good choice for them. But even then, what began to happen is people began to push back. And these are some of the respectable rulers and pundits from this country who talked about Benghazi and statements she made after the U.S. ambassador and uh, some other folk who function as agents and what have you were killed in Benghazi. So some people would protest that. Some people felt like she made just really bad choices in Africa. Like, for example, the relationship she had, but this wasn't her. I mean, this was part of the policy of Clinton and Obama, who had identified the presidents of Uganda, Museveni, and the president at the time of Ethiopia, and Kagame out of Rwanda had identified them as these, you know, reasonable you know, really great moderate leaders. And so they have identified these folks. Now, in the New York Times, in opinion pieces, talking about how, what a horrible job she did and how she made the statement at one time about uh, what was happening to our people in Rwanda and said something to the effect that if we call it genocide and don't do anything, it's going to hurt the elections in November. And so people remember that kind of stuff, even among the rulers, and are pushing back, not because they are against that kind of stuff, but because it hurts them politically, internationally, and economically, and what have you. And as you know, Susan Rice also became a lobbyist, a lobbyist for Kagame's government after she left office. So that says something about where her loyalties and fidelities rest, and that's with capitalism, the whole social system that oppresses us. So she is a logical choice for the rulers, but she would be an incredible aggression against our people. And I think more and more people are coming to terms 
that there is such a thing as white power in blackface, and that uh, we have seen that, and uh, I think even people are more and more recognizing that about Obama, and they will see that in Kamala Harris. Some people have already know that about Kamala Harris. I think we're getting kind of expose of those people in our own communities, black, just like us, who work for the other side consciously, not people who make stupid mistakes or uh, get the wrong line and whatever. They always have the right line. And when I say right in this instance, they know exactly what they say, exactly what they're doing. They are conscious representatives of our oppressors. And Susan Rice is just a really solid example of that. As disturbing as it is that they would consider Susan Rice as a Secretary of State, it is even more worrisome that we know that the Congressional Black Caucus would rally around her if she was in the running, just as they did when she was mentioned as a possible Secretary of State under Obama. Yes. And I think that's right. And I didn't even know people were still paying attention to the Congressional Black Caucus. They've played such an obvious anti-people, anti-black people role over the last many years. So I expect, you know, that's right in terms of their support for Susan Rice, because it's sort of like uh, there but the grace of God go I. It represents their own interest, their own unity with our oppression, and it represents uh, for them the potential, uh, possibly, of sharing the same kind of uh, power or relationship or statue that's associated with the Secretary of State themselves. Their children can also hope to be Secretary of State, or perhaps they can hope for office in the government. The Black is Back Coalition is getting ready for its yearly electoral school. And the lesson, as always, is that Black folks can run for office without being a minion of the Democrats or the Republicans. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely right. That's one of the things I think we can be proudest of that the coalition has done. But there are a lot of them. But this election school, the school to teach African people uh, how to participate in elections. And when we say how, we mean to achieve some kind of political clarity, some kind of analysis that would help people make good decisions about that participation. And we mean also how in terms of the, the techniques and skills that it would take to run for office or to put something on the ballot or to take somebody out of office, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I think we've done a good job on that. We also have put forth a national black political agenda for self-determination. And I really think that's important because we spent about a year in 2016, I think it was, where we traveled throughout the United States and we had something like 11 state conventions and a national convention in Washington, D.C. to participate with the people in establishing our own national black political agenda for self-determination, to take the purely abstraction and confusion out and to say, this is what self-determination looks like. This is how we operationalize what we believe in terms of self-determination. And so we traveled throughout the U.S. and people voted and united with this agenda for self-determination. And we've participated in electoral politics and people who we have endorsed. And we have endorsed several people who have put forth that platform, taking it out in the world in the various locations where they are, demanding a national black political agenda for self-determination that spoke to the critical issues that some of which have been historically important to our people and that never will reach a platform 
a legitimate platform in any kind of electoral campaign unless we take it, unless we influence people to take it. So that's what we're going to be talking about in part at this school, because we're not trying to create a situation where we can make people more effectively like the Democratic Party. We are trying to intervene uh, in this process that has been allowed to audition and cater to and promote what some of you at the Black Agenda Report characterize as this misleadership class. It's the, the African petty bourgeoisie, these uh, sycophants, these people who are locked at the hip, are locked by the lip, I should say, into the capitalist uh, colonialist system. They have been the ones who, it's been said they represent us because they are the only ones who have been participating there after the government succeeded in arresting and killing off the most significant leadership of our people during the 1960s. They elevated many of these creatures or their children into political office, political spaces, and even trained them. They're people who fund training them to represent black people, white corporate bosses. So what we are saying is that we are taking that space on ourselves and that black working people and activists can participate in this process and deny that sector of our population a monopoly on this discussion. And that we believe that it's absolutely necessary and important for us to use whatever forms of struggle are possible and appropriate at a particular time. And so we believe that the electoral process can be used to escalate our struggle, to elevate our struggle to higher levels as it really exacerbates the contradictions now that we have invaded that space and it's not just the African petty bourgeoisie or misleadership class that's speaking for us. Wherever white supremacy has established itself, mixed-race women have been used as symbolic weapons in maintaining racial oppression. Jasmine Mitchell is a professor of American Studies and Media and Communications at the State University of New York at Old Westbury. Dr. Mitchell is author of the book, Imagining the Mulata, Blackness in U.S. and Brazilian Media. She says the mulata is depicted and exploited in similar ways by white power structures in both countries. It's interesting that the academic studies uh, cross-national right, comparisons of race relations, the most often comparative study is actually the U.S. and Brazil. So there's this long history of academic comparison, in part right, because they're eminently comparable. Right? They both have long legacies of colonization and slavery. Brazil has the largest population of people of African descent outside of Nigeria. And they both have uh, really large, robust media industries that are consumed domestically, but are also exported all over the world, right, where these ideas around race travel. But I was really interested in studying this figure of the mixed black figure, right, or the mulata, right, in the national imaginations of both countries, and to see actually how this figure, its ideas around anxieties around blackness, are actually not particular to the U.S. or Brazil. So what I was really interested in uncovering in this book is that often the U.S. and Brazil are talked about as if they're very different from each other. I actually want to argue they're actually not. They just have different strategies and different ways of managing blackness. And it really stems from these hemispheric legacies of slavery and colonization, of how women's bodies get utilized really as vehicles Right, or as vessels to manage these anxieties around race and gender and sexuality. And you can only look at that. Right? You can only really understand 
right? One country or the other is actually if you look at them alongside each other. One way that the United States and Brazil are different and in which the U.S. is different from most of the rest of the diaspora is that no mulatto class was allowed to develop in this country with unique uh, privileges and status, as has happened all across the diaspora, including Brazil. Right. No, absolutely. There actually are differences, right, in the ways in which race is managed. But what I would say that the central focus of containing blackness and upholding whiteness are actually very similar. But you're absolutely right, right, that race in Brazil right, is not so much based on ancestry, right, it's based on, on phenotype, on what you look like. And I also argue in this book, actually, how sexuality and gender are presented. But that allows for you know, a much more fluid understanding of race in which there could also be these different racial categories. And as you said, right, this class that's put in between as what's seen as this, this buffer class. But I would also say, right, in the U.S., we have this hypodescent rule, right, or this one drop rule, which does not work in the same way right, as it did in Brazil. But part of that is because much of the U.S. national memory is to erase these histories of racial mixing. And there were these categories on the census right, of, in the U.S. of mulatto, quadroon, although they were all right, really encapsulated under this larger category and understanding of blackness. So you're absolutely right right there. There are huge differences, but I would say that the ideology around race is actually very similar. So how does the mulatto fit into schemes of racial management or management of people of African descent? Sure. What's interesting, right, the, the mulatto figure is this figure of, of fascination and desire and anxiety, I would say, throughout the Americas. And I actually you know, precisely use the term mulata because of its weighted history. Because actually I got a little bit of a pushback, right, of why are we using this term, given what it triggers. And well, that's exactly why I want to use it, of the way in which this figure haunts us in the U.S. as well as in Brazil. And what I would say is that she acts as a vehicle for racial management through the containment of Blackness, in which Blackness is seen for women as purely to the domain of, of sexual pleasure, or often through one of which the mulatto figure can widen the nation as well, through reproduction and through these ideologies of racial mixing with the hope that the nation will become less Black. Yes, the whitening of Black folks is seen as upward mobility and progress, and the mulatta is therefore presented as proof of such racial progress. Exactly, exactly. And, and Brazil, that's really clear. <laughs> you know, that's, she's been this icon of racial democracy and racial mixing that are intertwined where she literally becomes this evidence of racial democracy, that there's no racism here, because how could we possibly then have this celebrated, iconic mulatta figure? When actually the mulatta can be seen as proof of the power of white hierarchy, of white men over black women's bodies. Yes, exactly. Because this is a lot of figure is really used to up white patriarchy. And that's why it's so important to also think about how gender and sexuality are, are intertwined with blackness, because it's really about absolutely control over black women's bodies as a vehicle for the future of the nation. 
We've been talking about Brazil's claims to racial democracy, but Brazil is the capital of the world in terms of police killings of young people, people of African descent. Yes, there's this way in which then the imagery and celebration of the Mulata figure acts as a way to disavow racism and to deny state violence against black bodies. And perversive way as well, the mulatta figure herself also justifies and romanticizes sexual violence against black women. So there's this way in which there's this legacy of sexual violence from all the way going back from the coercions of slavery's reproduction to the way in which black female sexuality is continued to be commodified today to invisibility of, of rape in political legal systems, to the way in which the imagining of Black hypersexuality becomes justification for the oppression of Black women. Yes, most people in the United States, when they think of Brazil, they think of carnival in the big cities, Sao Paulo and Rio. And the image is one of a lightly clad, black, more mulatto woman. But Sao Paulo is a city in which in one week, police killed 300 young black men. That's what Sao Paulo is really all about. Right. And you know, what's interesting too, I think it's also important to also think about how region works in Brazil. So for example, thinking of Sao Paulo, which is a place I lived for a while and actually was my first job out of college, was actually teaching at the American school in Sao Paulo. And it's also where I conducted a lot of my research at the University of Sao Paulo for this book. And you know, Sao Paulo is often imagined as more modern, as the place where cosmopolitan city, where it literally is bringing up the economic, political, and intellectual order of Brazil. And part of that imagery is precisely because of the ways in which Sao Paulo is also imagined as whiter, the ways in which the region of Sao Paulo systematically marginalized Afro-Brazilians. And interesting, the Northeast tends to be blacker. It is also imagined as, as more backward. But you're absolutely right. There's this contradictory, going back to Carnival, this way in which Carnival is imagined internationally, so domestically within Brazil, but also internationally as temple of Brazil, in which the mulata and samba are often collapsed into each other. They become one and the same. And the mulata is essential to carnival, to sensuality, to samba, but it's only part of the year. And that's what I was interested in also looking at this book, in that it, she's really only contained within certain modes of the celebration of carnival during part of the year, of thinking about samba shows, which are often geared towards tourists. But the vast majority of dominant media, right, of magazine covers, telenovelas, are white. So there's this contradictory shift over who is valued in the nation and how is Blackness contained through the idea of mulata sensuality or through samba, right, but only in those domains. One of the actors that I really fascinated by her star persona is an actor, uh, Camila Patanga, who is the daughter of a very well-known Afro-Brazilian actor, Antonio Patanga, but you know, appears within the Brazilian racial systems, uh, Morena, right, which is really a, a vague way of saying anything from a brunette to just a polite way to call someone back, right, because there's such a stigma around Blackness or in this kind of mulata iconography. And what I find 
really interesting and striking about Camilla Patanga's stardom is that she identifies as Black as a personal and political stance. So while some of the mass media magazines around her clearly eroticize and exotify her, she, in a very forthright manner, says, I, and she says this over and over again, right? I'm a Black woman. I am not mulata. I am not morena. Precisely because she's trying to, one, open up the parameters of Blackness, but also change the stigma around Blackness and retake that. So she does that through the way in which she speaks about her identity. You're morena, right? Why do you call yourself Black? You're too pretty right, to be Black. And she's, this is precisely why I name myself as Black. To call me Morena right, in that way, to associate that as Blackness as being ugly, it's precisely why we need to change the vision of the way that we talk about Blackness. Now, U.S. imperialism, one component of it, is that people all over the world uh, get to see lots of things about the United States through U.S. media, but Americans don't know much about any place else in the world, including Brazil. And Black Americans' knowledge of Brazil is rather thin. Absolutely. That was part of the impetus for writing this book. I teach, I teach in an American studies department. What are they doing down there? Right? For example, the ways in which domestics are organized in Brazil, which tends to be overwhelmingly Afro-Brazilian. That's something we can learn from here. The way in which Black feminist movements are organized, we can learn that here. And what's unfortunate is that often, especially in, in activist circles, Afro-Brazilians read material of the U.S., but not the other way around. So I also really push back when you know, other scholars right, or citizens right, say, well, this is just a movie, hey, or this is kind of trivial. We can't take this too seriously. And so this is precisely why we need to look at media as actually a matter of life or death, because popular media right, is the way in which we form ideas around race, gender, and sexuality. It reproduces and we articulate these ideas around race, around literally who should live and who should die, who is valued. And these are connected to, we were talking earlier about state violence. These are connected right, of who is considered deviant, who belongs, who is a criminal, who is hypersexual. And the way in which these popular media images of the mulata right, evoke anxieties about blackness actually also become tamed and managed through these sexual logics. And so there's this way to, I was really interested in looking at the 2000s, precisely because of there's this hope with Barack Obama, there's this hope of progress with the Workers' Party, and there's a way in which the states are employing this rhetoric of multiculturalism. And despite all this, and despite the influence of more representation of mixed Black women in mass media, much of the narratives and imagery around these women remain the same, remain as ways in which the idea of multiculturalism is managed, right? That blackness can only be permitted within limits, palatable to white audiences. The ways in which, whether it be a telenovela or a film like Monsters Ball or a TV show, the ways in which black women are disciplined, are justified if they choose to step outside of the racial and sexual and gender that serves as a warning you might be included, but are only included under the limits of citizenship that still devalue women of African descent and that render Blacks as 
abject. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.